0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. And Ed, this is a very special summertime episode of The Pillar. I guess kind of, I I hate to say it, but I guess in a certain way, kind of end of summer episode of The Pillar Podcast in a certain way. Um, Summer is rapidly I am sad to say coming to a close and uh and we're making a very special episode so I guess it's in a certain way a very special end of summer episode. Um I guess it is kind of the end of
1: summer. I I don't know. Time time is a flat circle. I Well, no, this is this is I'm being unfair because you have children that are going back to school and I do not, but I soon will have the children. Um, the child.
0: the child. Wait, you're not having twins, are you? Are you guys having twins? No. Oh Man, I was hoping you would because it would double my chances of getting a child named after me Uh, or some other having some other role in the child's life. But but whatever. I mean, we don't need to talk about that now. I don't want you to be uncomfortable. But it would double my chances of having some sponsorship role, if you will, in the child's life.
1: I understand. Um, But no, we're definitely not having twins. Uh, But anyway, no, so, you know, summer is summer is kind of, you know, I like, you know, I still have the sort of emotional attachment to the academic calendar of, you know, the summer is June to August. And, you know, Mm -hmm. but uh, especially in D.C. where the weather is horrendous, um, you know, summer is just kind of this long stretch of time uh, that doesn't end till the end of September when it's just, you know, unpleasant to go outside.
0: And which is probably appropriate. I mean, that's because that, that is a more seasonal sort of right. assessment of the whole thing. Yeah. It is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But nevertheless, I'm, I'm looking forward to the end of quote
1: unquote summer, uh, by which I mean sort of other people getting back to work and doing the sort of things that they do about which we do the journalisms, which right. would be because nice. because it's
0: still, it's still the slowness of the summer journalism. And actually, that's what makes this a very special episode of, of the show, is that we're going to kind of do something. You know, we're sort of talking about what we should do on the show today, and... Um, well, we could kind of talk about things, but uh, you know, things in the news and and, and whatnot. But um, the truth is that uh, um, it's it's a slow it's a slow week in in certain ways. Now, obviously, there's a lot going on in the world, but for our beat, it's a slow week. One thing that I sort of want to acknowledge that's happening in relation to the end of summer is just that um, Catholic schools are getting ready to start in some parts of the country, um, and uh, and uh, not in your part of the country, I think, because school probably doesn't start. Until after Labor Day, as is proper, but here in the West, school is going to start just any day now. We're going to homeschool the big kids this year, but our uh, son Davy is going to go to preschool, and I think preschool starts on Tuesday or something like that. So school is school is here, and uh, and Catholic schools are facing another year of pandemic stuff. And I talked last week about being tired of the pandemic and all of those things, and. Um, I've been noticing, you know, that in a lot of parts of the country now, you know, and all of us, I'm sure, are noticing this, but in a lot of parts of the country now, like sort of what's under discussion in many places is mask mandates in school, and then what counties decide about mask mandates in school relates to what Catholic schools do or in some cases are required to do, and many places are required to do, but for Catholic school administrators, there's, a, I think— Um, in expectation that Catholic schools would not be sort of required to do what they're required to do by their county health departments or that they would choose not to by some parents. And it just seems like, um, as I've talked to principals and superintendents uh, and pastors from all around the world, a really big and difficult, excuse me, from all around the country, a really big and difficult headache right now is just that um, Catholic schools are going to have another difficult year, at least going to enter this year with another sort of set of difficult expectations and perhaps even difficult to parse and understand expectations with regard to the pandemic and masking and testing and these kinds of things. And it seems to me that whatever happens in each Catholic school, there's going to be a cadre of parents who are deeply unhappy about it, which means that um, Catholic schools are going to open under sort of the cloud of difficulty with parents perceiving perhaps that administrators aren't doing the right thing and administrators being criticized by parents for that. And all of that just makes for, you know, another hard year of beginning school, which is... Which is the reason why I've, I've sort of been uh, praying for Catholic school administrators and and probably ought to be praying for Catholic school parents too, but just for kind of peace in a set of circumstances that's largely outside of the control of, of both of them and yet impacts them and which people out which people have obviously lots of lots of feelings and thoughts I, about which they tend to be reactive yeah well I, I
1: in the in the more than a decade for which I was married and we were not expecting children um, it was always, you know, difficult, and you know, there's the infertility is a suffering um, of it its is, own yeah. kind. But the one thing that never made me suffer was listening to friends of mine who were parents discuss school and issues around school administration and all that sort of thing. I always just thought, good lord, if there if there is a silver lining to the cloud of not having children, <laughs> it is not having to deal with the educational system. So I am, yeah, I am now becoming more peripherally aware of all of the things that you were just talking about and thinking, oh, Lord, I'm going to have to deal with this, aren't I? And sort of
0: rubbing my eyes in anticipatory anxiety. I, I do I do feel very glad to be... It was not initially sort of our plan to continue homeschooling after the pandemic. And um, it just sort of was the way that things worked out. Um, but, um, but I do, as I kind of look at how I th- much of a headache I think a lot of this is going to be, I do feel glad, Uh, all the more glad. Uh, I mean, and Kate has been doing like an unbelievable amount of preparation for homeschooling and like making all these awesome books and I mean, all kinds of cool stuff. And so homeschooling is going to be fun around our house. We got the other day, this big plastic um, body, this big clear plastic body with like organs and nervous systems and veins and things that can be taken out and put back in and things like that. And so there's going to be cool stuff around here. But seeing all this, I'm glad, you know, for this reason too, that we have the blessing of being able to... Uh, to, to homeschool and, and all that too so anywho, it's going to be well, all I can tell you is if this carries on thing. I'm going to teach
1: my child to read and write and pray and then scour the world for a monastic community that will take him or her uh, at the youngest possible age <laughs> I just, that, that seems to me by far the better option at this point I maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'll learn, maybe I'll learn better but at the moment that seems to me to be
0: you know, preferable we could have like a whole substantive conversation right now about schooling and what schooling is and what it isn't and issues related to the church, what the church teaches about schooling. But I actually, I, I, I want to shelve that. And uh, the reason is because I kind of uh, thought that since it's August and um, the news is for the most part kind of slow, we could just sort of dip into our grab bag of oh, questions, which is to say that you readers frequently uh, send to us questions, canonical questions of various kinds or questions about the church in the news or the church in the world, um, about canon law as we are both um canon lawyers questions uh, about a great many things some of you send us questions about like um your lives which is very uh which for me at least is like very humbling and uh and um like i for which i feel woefully ill-equipped to answer when it's like well what do you think i should do in this situation or that situation please bear in mind that uh we are always glad to hear from you but are not actually wise in any meaningful way but um I did think that we could sort of dip into... But keep them coming anyway. Um, I, I, I'm always glad to get them. With that said, I did think we could kind of dip into our bag-o questions today and uh, and just kind of t- go through as many of them as, um, as uh, we're able to get through. What do you think, Ed? I love it. I love a good canon law,
1: silly season grab bag. Why not?
0: I think it would okay, be fun. great. Well, let's do it. Um, and, uh, and we're going to start with a question that we got in the in by email just a couple of days ago and i i think you were copied on this question so you got it but we have not we're kind of picking these at random and we have not prepared answers to them so what you're getting essentially is ed and jd canon law hot takes canon law hot takes ed and jd canon law hot takes let's thank you you're you're a good brander ed and jd's canon law hot takes we've got our codes of canon law in front of us and uh and our commentaries uh, nearby in case we need them uh, Ed sort of scoffed at the notion that we might, but we might dive to a commentary. No, sorry,
1: no, that was uh, me arching my eyebrows at the sound of
0: the freight train, which appears to be coming through my front garden. I, well, at any rate, we've got our, we've got a, we've got now a freight train, our codes and our commentaries, and we are ready for canon law hot takes. And this is one that we got by email not too long ago. Uh, here it is. I have a friend whose employer decided to mandate COVID vaccination. There is no escaping the pandemic it generated an odd question that I thought might fit in a a mailbag. Would it be legal, canonically, for a priest to require a penitent to get a vaccine as a part of a penance? I don't think that I've ever gotten a penance like that, but would it be legal for um, a priest to require someone to get a vaccine as part of a penance? Okay, so I I assume we
1: mean sacramental penance
0: in this case. Yeah. So this so the not a, so the not scenario a penance this.
1: imposed by executive authority.
0: No, 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 no. A penitent goes to confession, um, uh, to the sacrament of penance, um, confesses his sins individually and integrally, um, with with con, with a contrite uh, spirit and disposition, um, resolves firmly to commit them no more, um, and uh, prior to his absolution, I suppose um, the priest discusses with him a penance and says to him that um, his penance uh, ought to be to get a vaccine. In this case, I suppose the coronavirus vaccine. Uh, uh, And and I'm not sure if the person is saying this is a condition of absolution or not, uh, we can kind of take it in either way. Would it be appropriate for it to be a condition of absolution, and uh, would it be appropriate otherwise as a penance? So, um, Ed, starting, let's start with the uh, what I think is the easier one. Would it be appropriate for a priest to require um, getting a vaccine for as a condition of absolution? Uh, no. no. No.
1: No, that would not are be Are you in the law there, sir? I, I am in the law. I'm looking for—I'm I'm fishing around in the late 900s, where, wherein you find within the blessed— Book four on the sanctifying function of the church. The canons relevant to the sacrament of penance. Seal. Interpret.
0: This is going to be an interesting show because we are going to be sort of looking at the law, kind of scanning the law at various times, and so there might be these pauses, guys. But you'll hear our pages flipping, so that's something. Oh no, I want interstitial
1: um. music of the Jeopardy. You know,
0: right? <laughs> actually, I want.
1: I want to. I, actually you know what i would like is rather than the jeopardy one we can use the jeopardy one but also the are you familiar with the british show countdown
0: i'm not familiar with the british show countdown i think does it use, use the, the song, song final countdown no it doesn't it's a final countdown. it does not use no. that at all um it's, okay. it's well, an excellent it, use?
1: Show. Oh, it it's it's like jeopardy it just has a sort of you know musical hook that they play when people are doing their homework on camera um
0: turn to 980 yeah uh, if the confessor has no doubt about the disposition of the penalty, penitent and the penitent seeks absolution, absolution is to be neither refused nor deferred. Absolution is not to be deferred, which is to say that a condition that sort of conditioning absolution on X, Y, or Z. If you do this, I will, um, I will absolve you. Is not is not an appropriate thing. So, um, so the the first thing could the confessor sort of condition the absolution on getting a vaccine? The answer is no.
1: No, um, I mean you do have to have the intention to reform your ways and the you know within the context of the sacrament the way in which one is expected to manifest the intention to reform one's ways is to perform a proper penance duly assigned by the priest um, now
0: it is it is true that a a a, a, pen, a confessor can refuse absolution if a person seems not to have an intention to reform their ways or is manifested and explicit about their intention not to reform their ways so if in other words i go and i say i'm in a, a consi- i'm in i'm I'm in the mafia. I uh, I would like to confess that I am a hitman for the mafia, and every night uh, after I finish working at the pillar, I go and I do a hit. Do a hit? Is that do a hit? Um, and while you whack I need people, to keep, JD. Yeah, I yeah. I take them out. And uh, you're from Jersey. And, uh, yeah, I I do a hit, and um. And while I intend to continue doing this, I nevertheless recognize the sinfulness of it, and therefore I would seek absolution. It is entirely appropriate for my confessor to say, no, if you continue to do hits, um, and you intend to continue to do hits, it will not absolve you from your having done hits, because you obviously have no intention of reforming or sort of abandoning this sinfulness. Um, But uh, but that is a condition under which um, the the absolution could be denied. But if I went and I said, I'm really sorry that I've been doing hits and I'm really going to try hard not to, the money is really good. And, you know, um, I like being in the mafia because we get to, we talk with, we wear kind of cool suits and we talk with funny accents and stuff, but also the money and my family and I'm going to try really hard not to do it again. Um, in that case, sort of manifesting an intention um, to, to withdraw from contumacy, as it were, um, the I don't think my confessor would have any reason to, uh, to deny absolution, but he would if I had every intention of continuing with the hitting. I might even be a little
1: firmer than your being there, but okay. H- how so? Well, I, you, have to, you have to manifest the intention to avoid the near occasion. Um, if you're not departing the mafia, which is itself a criminal organization, you are not, um, you're not manifesting the intention to avoid the near occasion of sin. So I, I would say unless you're, unless you're able to say to your confessor, and I have left the mafia, or I will leave here and go to sever my ties with said criminal fraternity. Uh, I think that would be grounds for possibly withholding absolution.
0: um, Well, I don't know. That might have to be discerned very carefully because leaving the mafia, I mean, just leaving the mafia is the kind of thing for which I could be myself hit, for which I myself could be assassinated insofar as I know from movies. And so if I say to the fellow, I, I am not at the moment able to sort of like formally resign from the mafia because I... Uh, because the consequences of that to my children and et cetera, et cetera, but I do have every intention of formally dis- So in other words, there are reasons for me to remain in, the, in sort of this occasion of sin, which cannot be immediately overcome, um, but I do have every intention not to do any more hits. I, I think I most certainly can be absolved. Mm, familiaris Consortio, Ed. Familiaris Consortio, which is what I've been talking about this entire time. Familiaris Consortio talks about the obligation of couples who are... I
1: like um, that you've somehow set this up as a question about mafia hit jobs. And actually, this was just a Trojan horse to talk about irregular marriages.
0: You didn't know that I was talking about Familiaris Consortio?
1: I, Honest to God, you're a New Jersey kid. I just thought you wanted to talk about <laughs> guys in tracksuits. I really
0: did. I Okay. Um, I guess I did. I'm not sure that I immediately set it up to talk about Familiaris Consortio, but I was certainly thinking about it as a parent. Hello. So, um, uh, Familiaris Consortio, the apostolic exhortation, maybe of John Paul II. I don't know what classification of document it is, but a document. Is of it is a proprio It was. No, it was a post-synodal apostolic exhortation. Post-synodal apostolic. That's what I thought. Familiaris Consortio talks about the obligation of couples who are living together without the benefit of marriage to separate. In other words, that um, couples can't, um, you know, uh, live um, in the mode of marriage in, in a married in the married way. Um, together with one another if they don't actually have marriage, but it also acknowledges that there are circumstances in which um, it may be impossible for couples to sort of disentangle their physical residence um, from one another, or which, in which it might might be just unadvisable. They are um, jointly raising children, and for some reason at the time unable to get married. Perhaps one of them was previously married and can't or hasn't gotten a declaration of nullity or something like that, but th- th- they're raising children together, or they are um, elderly and caring for one another in a sort of caretaking way, or or something like this. familiars consortio recognizes there may be circumstances under which it is not um, morally possible or even or even advisable for the couple to physically separate their domicile, but they nevertheless have to um, abstain from. Conjugal root from having sex with each other, right? Because they're not married to each other. And uh, and if I were in that circumstance, and I went to my confessor and I said, "We can't separate because uh, physically, because of X, Y, and Z, we are going to continue. We have to continue to live together because we're raising kids together, and we are we own a house together, and we're financially entangled with one another, and these kinds of things. But um, we are not having a sexual relationship with one another because we're not married to each other. Um, I I most certainly could be um, absolved of previous. Uh, incidences of having sex, even if it might be possible that I might commit that sin again, um, I don't have, you know, I don't think the confessor can say, no, you absolutely, I absolutely will not absolve you unless you move out, given the dictates of familiaris consortio.
1: That's fine. But you are incorrect in your application of that correct application of
0: familiaris consortio to the instance of someone who kills people for the mob. Well, again, I think I, ha- I think, don't think I can be absolved unless I tell them, unless I, I go and I have no intention of killing no, any no, more no, people. No, 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 no. And let me tell you why. <laughs> okay.
1: Yeah. Because cohabiting with someone uh, in a non-marital way, while mm-hmm. open to misinterpretation and the possibility of scandal, which the church recognizes and advises that there be some yeah, sort there's of there's a hole to do there. There's yeah. a hole to do there, but in the church accommodates that is not in itself inherently sinful for a couple that had previously enjoyed quote-unquote, marital relations, despite not being married, and who are raising children... have sex. Yes. It's a family We can say that on the show. Can we? Okay. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, for them to continue together in a domestic setting for the benefit of the children and to raise them in a stable manner is not itself objectively sinful. Membership of a criminal fraternity is...
0: I agree that membership of a criminal fraternity is in itself objectively sinful, but I also think that it is possible that there may be circumstances in which I could not leave at least leave right now without being killed. And while I could discontinue doing the thing, um the assassinations that I was doing, my confessor could nevertheless sort of recognize my sort of discernment tw- my my orientation towards being totally rectified from having left them from from my mafia affiliation as a process which is going to take some time well no, that's for example but okay, my, but that's my the, but but kids be off fine for goodness sake no but you're hang on you're changing
1: the you're changing the terms of your own example right? i don't think so yeah no there's because how this started was a question about the firm intention to avoid the near occasion of sin in the future and if as we started off just saying well i'm not going to do the killings anymore but i'm going to stay in the mob that I think poses a problem. Whereas saying, "Of course, I'm going to stop the killings immediately, and I want to get out of the mob, and I'm trying to orchestrate it in whatever." Oh way yeah, necessary. sure, sure. I thought that was kind of a given. Oh, yeah, no. uh-huh, you, yeah, you can't just say, "Well, I
0: like the suits and you know hanging." And out so I'm going to stay in, right? Yeah. No, I think that would be true. I think if I said I'm not going to do the killings anymore, but I'm going to stay inside this criminal organization, and I'm not sorry about that, uh, you know, I think then I think then the question would be: Is it is being in the criminal organization itself a sin? And I think yes. And so therefore, well, the Pope has um, been very clear. It's a sin. The Pope has been very clear. But I think if I said, I'm not going to do the assassinations anymore, I'm confessing those, I recognize that I'm in this situation where I can't quite leave the mob because they're going to assassinate my family or whatever, um, you know, that, that would be a situation where I think I could be absolved even while remaining in this sort of difficult situation. Okay.
1: Well, we've talked at great length about things that were not the question we were, <laughs> that were not the question, I
0: know Shall that's we? Right. Shall we attempt to talk a little bit
1: about the question? Yeah.
0: Okay, so the point is, I don't think he can. I don't think he can condition the, um, and and there may be a more specific can about this, but I don't think that. Well, he so can...
1: 981 says the confessor is to impose salutary and suitable penances in accord mm-hmm. with the quality and number of sins, taking mm-hmm. into account the condition of the penitent. Then the penitent is obliged to fulfill these personally. So, uh, what I would say here is, what is the what is the sin or constellation of sins that renders, um, the taking of a vaccine the appropriate right. penance. You know, right. the, the penance has to fit the sin. Um, yeah. It's not okay to say, well, all right, you've been, I don't know, um, stealing from work, but I also know that you really don't want to get a coronavirus vaccine, so go and get a coronavirus vaccine. On, that's your penance. Yeah, yeah, I don't think that's appropriate. So you'd have to find yeah. some way of linking the penance of you have to get a vaccine to uh, a, a sin in an
0: appropriate way, and I and- I can't see one. Um even if you could i think that the congregation for the doctrine of the faith's gu- sort of guidance well, on the coronavirus. yeah this is where
1: i was going to go with it to say even and above that even
0: if you could come up with a legitimate argument that says
1: well you know this would be a real penance that is suitable to some particular sin or sins i don't know that you can impose a penance that basically involves binding the conscience in an area of legitimate freedom i right. i don't think that that is i mean i'm trying to come up with a with an ex- with a sort of you know Um, an, An analog to it of saying, you know, well, where's another case where a person enjoys, you know, legitimate exercise of free conscience in a thing, and the confessor could bind the conscience to make a particular
0: decision as a penance, and I can't come up with one. Neither can I. I. I can see how if a person had a relationship of sort of like, a, of, of a person, spiritual direction is an interesting thing. And when people talk about sort of being under obedience to a spiritual director, I I, I, I don't quite sort of understand that. But I could see how if one were sort of, if if a spiritual director said, I, I don't think it's good for you to do this, or I think it's good for you to do this. And, you know, maybe even you ought to do this. I think that's one thing. But in the context of confession, to sort of require something because a person is bound to fulfill their conscience their penance now we can talk about sort of this the what that means in a minute but still i mean there is a sort of moral obligation to fulfill one's penance all things being equal and so to offer a penance that says you yeah you have to do this thing which the church otherwise says is something which you can discern in conscience which has a sort of perduring consequence is different from um is even different from sort of like take um go on a pilgrimage um, you know, as a means of uh, making pen- of, of, of doing a penance for your sins, a, a serious pilgrimage, a poverty pilgrimage, by which you are going to, you know, cross the country by foot to some, sake. That, to some sacred site. Even that has a sort of end. It has a definitive sort of end. Um, I am doing this thing as a penance, and then it will be over. Um, do this thing that will be, that perdurs, um and will have this be enduring in that way, it does not seem to me to be appropriate for a penance.
1: No, uh, and, and the other thing I would say about it is this. Um... One assumes, one hopes, that the reason a person has discerned in conscience not to receive a coronavirus vaccine is because they have some particular um, question of conscience and morality about it. Mm-mm. Now, the church has been perfectly clear from the level of the Vatican all the way down that a Catholic can, in good conscience and complete moral freedom, take any of the available coronavirus vaccines. So I want to make that perfectly clear up front. Anyway, that having been said that, you know, the church, rec- the CDF has recognized that some people may come to a particular um, sort of uh, more absolute moral determination about uh, the methods used for the development of vaccines in general, and these ones in particular, and may say that they do not wish to have even the most remote cooperation with the means by which those vaccines were developed, even though they stretch back and are, you know, effectively not cause and effect anymore. Uh, going back to the 70s and everything else. Fine. But here's the thing with relation to the question we are asked. Assuming that the reason you're not getting the vaccine is because of that, a legitimate determination of conscience, to have imposed as a penance for a person to act against their conscience is, right. I would argue, mm-hmm. very, very wrong. Right. Now, Agreed. so the only way in which I could conceive of someone telling someone to get a coronavirus vaccine in the as a penance is if... Yeah basically they said oh, i've been really meaning to do it
0: i know i should get it but I've i just been lazy I and, it. and the just lazy get it it's just you know, they're like, like, gonna make me drive get... to this hospital center on the other side of baltimore and i just you know i don't want to and get those things off your list do those things because you you've confessed a number of sins related to sloth and here's yeah. one thing that is for the common good you yourself have discerned that it's for the common good yeah. and you're not doing it get that thing done i i can i can see that i mean i would be a little bit worried about how that would be interpreted i guess but i can see that as a possibility yeah
1: so that's that's where mm-hmm. i would come down on it if if yeah. the mm-hmm. reason that a person is not taking the vaccine is a discernment in conscience then no i you can't impose a penance that basically says i want you to act against your conscience in an area where your conscience has legitimate moral freedom yeah. mm-hmm. if the person is basically resolved in conscience that it's fine to take the coronavirus vaccine even has the sort of you know um general intention to so to do but has not been doing it for dumb reasons then yeah. yeah i could maybe
0: see it there although like you say i'd be a little bit chary of how you phrase that yeah what should you do Ed, if you if you're given a penance that you that what should you do if you can't fulfill your penance well first of all let's ask the first question is your is your absolution valid if you don't fulfill your penance yes yes sacramental absolution is either valid or invalid at
1: the moment at which it's imparted if processing. it's valid, mm-hmm. it's valid. That's it. It doesn't sort of... Um, you can't have... And interestingly, this is the same thing with matrimonial consent uh, in canon law, is that you can't have something like that uh, in a sort of suspended ambiguity. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, yeah. it's not possible. So if yeah. your absolution is valid, it's valid, whether you do your penance or not. Um, so, so there's that. So if you forget or you, you find you cannot do it later or whatever else, it doesn't invalidate your absolution. It, it yeah. might be a legitimate sin and something else for you to confess next time it, that you haven't
0: it, it, done that it. You haven't, if you haven't done it, it might be a sin. If you, if you can't do it, um, if you find that you can't do it for practical reasons or more, for moral reasons, um, effective reasons, it, it seems best to discuss that with your confessor. Um, e- even the question of sort of whether or not th- that's a sin, it seems best to discuss it with your confessor or with another confessor. But um, the absolution is not sort of conditioned on the completion of the penance, to be sure. And if you forget about the penance, um, well, y- you got to ask yourself, are you forgetting about the penance habitually because you just don't care and it goes in one ear out the other, um, or did you forget about the penance? But if you legitimately forget about the penance, well, um, you for- you know, no one is held to the impossible, but one would hope that well, so much time has gone by it, that you've about it. Presumably, you're not bothered in conscience by it because you have forgotten yeah, about it. <laughs> this is true, but one would and one would hope that so much time hasn't gone by that you've forgotten about it. If you find that you can't do it, it seems um, certainly because the absolution is not conditioned on it. Um, you know, it, it it is a matter of conscience, but it seems probably best sort of worked out and discussed with a confessor. Is that your perspective on things?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I would, I would, I would recommend that. Um, yeah questions
0: about confession the answer is usually more confession yeah i mean i think if you just walked out and said i'm not doing that you know that would be a, a bit of an issue but if you sort of walked out and said i don't think that well i mean hang on like i can understand there are circumstances in which someone might walk out of a confessional and go well
1: i'm not doing that
0: i mean if you're if, it, if an illegitimate penance is imposed there's but no again the question is is that because of belligerence or for a legitimate reason that's what i was driving at. The imposition or the, dis- or the... No, I mean, if a person walks out and belligerently says, well, I'm not doing it, well, I'm no, involved. Yeah, sure, what so I'm then, saying, if, yeah. they, if you walk out and say, I'm not doing that because the
1: it was an illegitimate penance that was imposed, right. then I would say, well, yeah, then just, you know, take your business across the street, um, find another confessor and say, look, I went to confession, I confessed this, I had, you know, perfect contrition here, I really do, you know, all these things. The penance I was given was this, and I cannot in good conscience do that, and I don't believe it to be a legitimate penance because... For example, it required me to make a public manifestation of conscience right, uh, or something like that. And, you know, that hopefully the second confessor will say, yeah, oh. you're not allowed
0: to do that. Um, and, and I I don't want to make that sort of like go to the second confessor because he has some sort of pa- magic power to release you from the first thing. No. I think the second confessor would discern with you whether that's a legitimate, you know, help you to discern yeah. whether that's a legitimate decision. If you can't go to the second confessor, because let's say you live in a small town and you know, the other next parish is far away, or you're in the military and the same chaplain kind of comes to your base every, however often or whatever. I mean, I think a person can legitimately discern on their own, you know, this is just not a just or reasonable or possible uh, penance, and therefore I'm going to substitute it with some other penitential act. But if that can be worked out, I think with another confessor, all the better.
1: I agree with what you say, although I think if you're the kind of person who has questions about the the suitability and lucidity of a particular pen to begin with. You are not going to be the sort of person who's going to sit easy with your conscience, making a personal decision one way or another.
0: Ah, uh, okay, all right.
1: Yeah, it could be. I, I may be wrong, but uh, that's that's my expectation.
0: Well, you've never been yet. Just kidding. <laughs> Okay, have we sufficiently beaten this horse? Uh, yeah, I am mean, wonder if we're going to get to a second question. <laughs> Are we going to get to a second question? Yeah, I'm just going to kind of spin the wheel of canonical hot takes. In other words, I'm just going to sort of, I'm going to scro- I've got a long list of questions in front of me, and I'm just going to scroll up and down, and Ed, you tell me when to stop. I'm scrolling up, I'm scrolling down. Stop. Related to issues of bination and trination, which at some point you and I must have discussed, mm-hmm. I would be interested in understanding the rule and rationale for how often a layperson may receive the Eucharist in a day. Ah, okay. So would you discuss how often a layperson may receive the Eucharist in a day and the rule, both the rule and rationale for that? Yes. So we get to stay. Stay in the Blessed Book book 4. Or we even get to stay in Book 4, Part 1, the sacraments, and we get to head from penance to the Eucharist. Turn, 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 turn. turn, Indeed. Got a cannon yet?
1: Not yet. We're getting there.
0: Canon 917. Yes. Yes. Canon 917 is the canon for us. Uh, a person who already who has already received the most holy eucharist can receive it a second time on the same day only within the Eucharistic celebration in which the person participates, without prejudice to the prescripts of Canon 921, paragraph 2.
1: 921, paragraph 2, parenthetically, I would note, is basically, if you've been to Mass, but then later in the day find yourself in danger of Don death, <laughs> you are to receive viaticum.
0: Even if they have been nourished by Holy Communion on the same day, those in danger of death are strongly urged to receive Communion again. Canon 921, one two. So, go back to 917. A person who has already received the Most Holy Eucharist can receive it a second time on the same day, only within the Eucharistic celebration in which the person participates, without prejudice to 921. We'll leave aside 921 for a moment. So, Ed, what does this say? How many times may a person receive Holy Eucharist? Two. Two, although. Although. Two with an only. <laughs> Go ahead. What's The only being that
1: you have to actually be, you know, attending Mass and participating. Uh, so
0: this is, before you even get there, I would actually say the number is three. Here's why. Can, wait, wait, wait,
1: wait, no, hang on. I want to see if I can figure out how your twisted little mind works before it goes there. I think that a
0: layperson can receive the Most Holy Eucharist three times on a day. Maybe not often, but it could happen.
1: Are you suggesting that if you, one is uh, serving Mass and is serving three Masses on a Sunday, they might feel the need to receive communion at all three
0: Masses? Is that what? No, I'm not suggesting that. I'm suggesting that a person oh, might if, receive the Eucharist once. Oh, you can Eucharist do two plus once. viaticum, I beg your pardon. Yeah, a person might receive the Eucharist once then receive it again in, within the context of a, ma- a Eucharistic celebration in which they are participating, and then having gone to Mass twice that day or received the Eucharist once not at Mass and then the second time at Mass suddenly finds themselves dying, that might be the day on which a person might receive the Most Holy Eucharist three times. Yes. Yes. But the answer is, okay.
1: and also it's worth noting, because I'm sure your code is as annotated as mine is at this point. point, uh, second time, that is the... the so subscribing it to two a maximum of two plus not mm-hmm. with without prejudice to the Vatican exception two and only two is an authoritative interpretation that came from the PCLT. So this is not a sort of you know well it a second time second. doesn't mean another time. Yeah, it doesn't mean another yeah, time. It means two and only two. Two,
0: two and only two plus positive, the possibility of one. Yeah. So ordinarily under ordinary circumstances a person can receive the Eucharist once. Um, and usually that would be at Mass. But let's say that you, you know, you, usually you ought to receive the Eucharist at Mass. But there may be circumstances under which you don't, you haven't received the Eucharist at Mass and you otherwise receive the Eucharist. A communion service in, in the absence of a priest or um, some other circumstance in which um, the Eucharist is distributed but, but you're not at Mass. Uh, communion service is one that most kind of concretely comes to mind. Um, so let's say that that happens. You don't think that there's going to, here's the scenario you don't think that there's going to be a priest at your parish on Sunday because the priest went on vacation and uh, and forgot to get coverage. And so um, the deacon comes up at the beginning. Uh, everyone shows up for Mass, and the deacon comes up and says, attention, everyone, attention, everyone. Um, Father went on vacation, and he forgot to get coverage. And, uh, and so we do not have a priest today, so we are not going to have Mass. But we are going to have a Sunday celebration in the absence of a priest, a liturgy of the Word with the distribution of Holy Communion. And so we don't have a Mass, properly speaking, but we have the readings and then the distribution of holy communion one you might receive the eucharist under those circumstances um or you might receive it at mass but if you uh let's say that later that day father rolls back into town and he says sorry everybody i totally forgot to get coverage i really really forgot uh, I haven't offered Mass yet today, so I'm going to offer Mass if you want to come to Mass. But you fulfilled your Sunday obligation because that wasn't on you, and you were there and everything. But I'm going to offer Mass. And, and you guys are like, yeah, we like going to Mass, so we're going to go to Mass. Um, that would be the circumstance under which you might receive the Eucharist the, 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 the second time. in a, In a Eucharistic sacrifice in which you participate. Now, participate means... Um, full active conscious participation in your vocation as a layperson, the mystical participation of prayer and offering your sacrifice in union with the sacrifice of the priest at the altar. It doesn't mean like being a lector or being an altar boy or something like that. It means participating in the sense of being uh, present and assisting spiritually in the work of the priest at the altar. Um, so those would be the two as I see it.
1: I, I feel like there were, there were other more accessible, um, give it to me exactly. Uh, you're a daily mass goer and a daily communicant, and you get up on a Saturday morning and you go to mass as is your wont, and then later in the evening you go to a wedding, and there is mass. Oh, at that the... could
0: be. That could be. That could be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can uh, you take a yeah. second?
1: Yes, because you are attending yeah. the mass. Data. What this is meant to stop, and this is where we get to the rationale. This is where to... as, And you do see this. I mean, in, I, I live not in the District of Columbia, that would be disgusting, but I, I live near <laughs> the District of Columbia. I live in the general environs of the District of Columbia, wherein, like a rose on a dunghill, one will find the National Shrine of um, the Immaculate Conception, the Mother Church of uh, the United States. And in the crypt there, there are, in times not corona, um, lots of beautiful little chapels in the basement. You often see priests and pilgrim groups from all over the a uh, mm-hmm. country celebrating masses there, and mm-hmm. um, some particularly irreverent clerical classmates of mine when I was at grad school played what they called Shrine Mass Bingo, where they would try and see who could be the first to celebrate on every single side altar in the shrine. Oh, that's kind of a cool game. Well, yeah, but there's a Maronite Chapel that's actually locked, um, so it's oh. really hard to finish the game. Although we did have a classmate who was a Maronite and people kept asking to con celebrate with him and he thought they were showing real spiritual fraternity and everything is really, and then when he
0: figured out what they were doing, he got really angry. Um, Celebrate with him, but they didn't have, they would have had to have a bi-ritual faculty.
1: I, yeah, but you know, these were first year JCL students. So what do they know? Um,
0: (laughs) I would hope they would know that.
1: Maybe you, yeah, anyway, go ahead. Anyway. um, But you, you will in ordinary time see lots of masses going on, but you will also see the kind of, I, and I don't want to, I don't want to cave into stereotypes here. But a, a, well, cer- don't. a certain kind of pious, usually old lady.
0: Well, I don't know. Or it, it needn't be. It, it needn't, needn't be an old lady. But I'm just trying to paint a, a, a picture. A pious person a, who sort of goes from mass who to mass. Flits to mass.
1: from mass to mass to mass to mass to mass all through the day and is receiving communion every single time, or mm-hmm. even is passing by at the point of a mass where the priest is distributing communion. In the small mass that he celebrates, and
0: just gets in line and and a person could do that because they have a, a like a a, ve- a very sort of distorted understanding of the sacrament of the of the nature of the sacrament itself you know what i mean like a person could have a sense well the more eucharists i receive the more jesus is in me or or something right, like the, that
1: would, the, there is the sort of natural religiosity which views the species
0: as talismanic as magical right exactly as mm-hmm, i need the right. magic thing right i need the power that comes from it or something right. like that which is not how the eucharist is no and that the
1: reception of communion outside of viaticum and like you said you know communion services where the celebration of mass is neither uh is not possible or available Um, outside of that the reason the church and the canon says if you are actively participating in the eucharist you can receive a second time is because that is the proper setting for the reception of communion right you can't separate mass from the eucharist i'm so glad you're talking about this it's it's very important that you know that this is the eucharistic sacrifice is a coherent whole. Right. The offering of the priest, the anaphora, the Eucharistic prayers, all of these things that confect the Eucharist, the actual act of consecration, is not intended to be separated from the act of the reception of communion. That these because form it all
0: a... fits into an act of worship. Exactly.
1: Together. That it, this is, you know, Christ didn't say, you know, uh, take, eat, break, you know, pass, drink, but you know, not now later
0: yeah take it to go or something. yeah
1: take it as a roadie it's like no no that's it you know and similarly the disciples weren't you know sort of coming in at that moment and that it's part of a coherent whole and it, you need to have um an understanding of the sacrament which is coherent and holistic which it is meant to be and also is rooted in a particular liturgical tradition which is jewish that mm-hmm. you know this goes back to the passover meal Mm -hmm. That the act of the preparation of the meal and the celebration is part of what informs the tradition of the Eucharist. That when Christ instituted the Eucharist, he didn't do it ex nihilo. He wasn't creating a new thing. He was elevating and sacramentalizing something that already existed and elevating it to an entire new dimension that, you know, had never been even conceived of before. And so it's important to take these
0: things um, in, in their whole. Yeah. That's right. Now, that's not to say, of course, that there aren't circumstances under which being nourished by the spiritual food of the Eucharist, apart from the Mass, isn't a good thing. Sure, a no, we who said can't be a Mass and, and things like that. Yeah, yeah, r- mm-hmm. yeah or, or being sick, or being. Right. I mean, I knew a priest who was bringing people Holy Communion. Right. Well, there's a reason the why pandemic, we take yeah. Communion to people who can't attend Mass. It's right, not a question ex- exactly. of
1: you know you can't if you can't. It's just a question right, right. of there is the what is proper, yeah right. there's mm-hmm. what's proper what is intended by the Church how it is supposed to be when yeah. you can mm-hmm.
0: yeah that's right okay. Did we answer this? I feel like we did. I feel like we did too. I think that point about sort of the Eucharist fitting into the Mass is really important. I think there's a way in which we can lose sight of the fact that the Mass is... I think there's a way in which we can too easily sort of see the Mass as the thing that happens so that I can get the important thing, the Eucharist, instead of seeing the Eucharist in the context of this this act of worship, which is the Mass... Um, which is the worship that's proper to God and which is the highest expression of my humanity and my Christian identity.
1: Right. And it's it's of a piece with, um, uh, again, a, a talismanic, magical thinking about the church, her sacraments and her sacramentals. That, for example, I mean, you know, you probably know <laughs> more priests than me, which is, you know, not...
0: I don't know about that. I don't know.
1: We We know a lot of priests. We know Our, a lot of priests. My social circle is fairly overwhelmed with priests as mm-hmm. a general rule. Mm-hmm. And they all report the same thing, which is on Ash Wednesday tons of catholics come out of the woodwork who haven't been to mass in forever and don't even make it to mass on ash wednesday but they all come knocking on the presbytery door at all hours the day, saying oh you know father can i get the ashes can i get the ashes
0: and it's like well which in my mind i actually think thanks be to god for that because sacramentals are a thing which can orient us in the right direction but again they speak Mm -hmm. to a
1: poverty of formation because the purpose of the ashes is not they are a magical talisman the purpose of the ashes is that they are an external manifestation of an interior disposition to remember that one is dust and to what dust one will return that it one has adopted the lenten spirit of penitence oriented towards easter that the reason that you receive the ashes in the context of a liturgy is it's part of a liturgy it's part of right. a liturgy of you know beginning a new liturgical season uh, that you know they don't you, you don't just you're not supposed to go and just knock on the priest's door at 7.30 at night and say, ah, I didn't make it to Mass. Can I get the dust? You know, it's like, no, that's not that's not the idea. And I mean, again, there is a naturally religious impulse that you say. It's like, you know, better that they want it and understand at some level that there's something there. For sure, something is better than nothing. But there's a difference between natural religiosity and faith.
0: Well, it was a real uh, change. I, I agree with that stuff. And I, I would say... Um, natural religiosity points us. I mean, one of the coolest things about the faith is that natural religiosity is the can be the foundation upon which the gift of faith comes yes. or uh, is, grows and expresses and things like that. Um, one real inversion for me, just about sort of eucharistic theology, um, it was a real change for me when I uh, read. I think it was in the work of um, of uh, of of Bishop um, oh the the French Bishop Ray. I can't I can't remember his first name now. Um, uh, Bishop, uh, you know who I'm talking about. I don't. Um, you are much better read than I am. This is this is a yeah, well, if not
1: widely known, at least
0: it is a well-established fact that you are better read than. That's I am. not true. There's a French bishop, um, Dominique Ray. Yeah, Bishop Dominique Ray has a is a is a French bishop with a lot of good things to say, and he has some um, books on the Eucharist, which I think are translated into English. And w- one of the things he talks about, which actually is drawing from Benedict the Sixteenth, is the way in which adoration of the um, Most Holy Eucharist continues for us, or is a way in if, of like. Um, Remaining connected to the Mass and prepares us for the Mass that um, that I guess I knew intellectually but not sort of appreciated that um, the Mass is a higher form of worship than adoration of the Blessed Sacrament and that the, the adoration of the, the, the Blessed Sacrament in a certain way connects us to the Lord through the Mass like connects us keeps us in, in intimate continuity with the Lord through its connection to the Mass because the Eucharist comes out of the Mass and also um, orients us towards the mass. So if we grow in Eucharistic devotion through Eucharistic adoration, um, it, 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 like um, being in front of the Eucharist disposes us to better uh, to, to better participate in mass and to sort of better um, receive and uh, appreciate and understand um, what's happening in the mass. And adoring the Blessed Sacrament also helps us to sort of like continue to unpack and um, uh, connect to our Lord through the mass in an enduring way, and that's like a, that's, a, I think, a real, I, I I, think I might have known that intellectually, but it was a real change for me to see, oh yeah, this is, um, the Mass really is the center thing, and if it isn't for me, then something like the Adoration of the Blessed Sacrament can orient me towards the mass rather than um there's a way in which we can become very individualistic about eucharistic adoration well this is the time for sort of me and the lord right and and this is the highest thing because i have this intimacy with the lord and the blessed sacrament and the monstrance here and it's quite in the adoration chapel and it's just me and the lord and i can uh, i can develop i can grow in the spiritual life in in me- mental prayer and contemplative prayer and, and 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 those things are true what's also true that i think we can fail to appreciate is that those things um better prepare us and form us to participate in full active conscious participation in the holy sacrifice of the mass, which is the, the sort of pinnacle of the Christian life.
1: The source and summit, if you will.
0: The source and summit, if you will. So, I don't know. I'm no theologian. I'm not sure if I'm saying that well. But it was really a big deal for me to start to sort of think about things that way because it was a, just a total switch from thinking, yeah, um, maybe thinking that Eucharistic adoration is the place for the, sort of the highest form of prayer because it's personal and intimate to thinking, no, actually the highest form of prayer is the church's prayer. And I this was always personal always
1: told and taught. Um, You're better formed than me. Everybody. Well, I don't that. know about that. Um, well, but I, I was about to say maybe I maybe this was put to me in a pithy way, but the, a way that perhaps was deficient. And in which case, I'm sure we'll have plenty of people, hopefully priests, writing in to tell me I'm wrong.
0: But um, I was always oh, taught. Oh, everybody writes in to tell us we're wrong. They I know. Don't, I just you know, meant needed it. orders to do that. Well, yeah, that's true.
1: Um, anyway, but that the the sacrament is. Adored because it is reserved. It is not reserved to be adored. That the mm. function of the reservation of the sacrament is for things like viaticum. Mm. That it's not that we you know, say, "Oh, we really love Jesus, so we'll keep him in a box."
0: Yeah, I, I guess that I, I guess that makes sense. I mean, it raises a question about exposition, which is certainly well. For if you've sake. got it,
1: you the of course the right thing to do is to adore the Lord if He is there and present. Mm-hmm, and yeah. True, and not to ignore Him and not to make much of the miracle that is there present for sure. But that the you know the original intention of the church in permitting oh, the I'm reservation sure, true, of the Eucharistic yeah. species was not a question of all. Well, wouldn't it be cool if we just you know sort of had had the species sort of suspended here uh, in time that we could then adore at our leisure and sort of put the Lord at our contemplative disposal? That that was not mm-hmm. the intention. That the intention was no, it is reserved for emergency use for the faithful. But and since from he, there grew but, a whole. Yeah, exactly, but since we have it. Since we are reserving it, we have to have somewhere to put it. So we have a tabernacle. Where do we keep the tabernacle? Obviously, in the church. If the if the church is open and the Lord is physically present, of course, that is the focus of prayer and adoration and literally grows up
0: around that. That is how I had it explained to me. Well, okay. I've never heard that, but I can dig it. Okay. Shall we do another? Sure. Okay. Wheel of cannons. Turn, turn, turn. Tell us the lessons that you should learn. Ed, tell me when to stop. Up, stop. down, up, down. You sure? Oh, God. What?
1: <laughs> okay. I'm worried now.
0: Oh. <laughs> no double dipping, if it's something we've already covered. Then. no. Well, I think we may have already covered this at various times in our lives. Um, and I think people might be tired of talking about it, so uh, we're going to... Excuse me, hearing about it. People might be tired of hearing about it, rather. Not talking about it. You guys are... Doing the listening. I'm not tired of talking about whatever it is that this is, but I'm going to give it another spin here, Ed, because I think we've talked about this before and I think we'll probably talk about it again. Okay. Tell me when to stop. Stop. Tell me when to stop. Oh, for crying out loud, just pick one. <laughs> I didn't think that was a good one. This is an interesting one, though, and it's not precisely a canonical question, but I do think it's an interesting question. Maybe it's a canonical question. I don't know. But I have some thoughts about it. You might too. You hear about some older saints, this person writes, who left behind families, like left behind their children after a spouse dies, to found or enter religious orders, and they just drop the kids with some aunt or something. Does canon law say anything about this today? Would that ever be allowed? Uh,
1: I'm not aware of a canon that
0: specifically. You want me to go first? Please. Okay. Uh, yeah yeah i guess you do hear about that kind of thing where um maybe uh yeah i in fact there was a saint that i wrote about in the newsletter a little while ago who um the the uh the husband died and the mom entered a, a monastery and the kid went to live with an aunt i think it was exactly that the kid went to live with an aunt well one of the which one of the
1: desert fathers was it who this was the start of everything was his parents died left him a fortune he sold absolutely everything dropped his sister off with Relations and went and found a door. In the end, I think the sister went on to uh, lead a monastic life. Also, clubs.
0: yeah, yeah, okay. So anyway, you do hear about that kind of thing, and and uh, and you don't hear about it too much these days. But there are some contemporary or contemporary-ish examples of um, of couples of married couples eventually sort of entering religious life, getting a dispensation, which I think is effectively a canonical separation with the bond remaining. Uh, canon eleven fifty one. We're going to start with the law and then kind of go from there.
1: Okay. Uh, uh, I don't. Re- I didn't remember eleven. The eleven fifty ones dealing with children. Cool.
0: Not children, but we're gonna start oh, okay. separation of the buns. Yeah, start- for sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, Spouses have the duty and right to preserve conjugal living, to live together as man and wife, unless a legitimate cause excuses them. Now, we talk about that often. Spouses have the duty and right to preserve conjugal living. Spouses have a duty and right to one another to live as man and wife, unless a legitimate cause excuses them. We often talk about that these days in terms of a legitimate a legitimate cause being a legitimate cause for couples to separate or maybe even to pursue a civil divorce because of. Um, Uh, uh, abuse of one kind or another uh, to to either the spouse or to the children um, or other legitimate causes which may give rise to a separation and divorce but this has also been sort of thought of um, in the history of the church as um, couples who have um, sought to separate in order to enter religious life. Um, Maximilian Colby's parents who I realize are not contemporaries and now that I think about it that's like actually kind of far in the past I suppose but Maximilian Colby's parents um, did this, if I remember correctly, I can't remember when it was, but I think it was when all the kids were raised. Maximilian Colby's parents, after all the kids were raised, essentially went to their bishop and they said, as I recall correctly, we each want to be a religious um, of one kind or another. And they, they, you know, they had a had a holy and happy marriage. I don't think it's, I don't think it's that they were, um, you know, mad at each other or something like that. Although who's to, who's to say? I suppose. Um, but they, in, insofar as I recall. They separated to enter religious life. Now, someone may write to me and tell me I was wrong about that. But they separated to enter religious life after the kids were grown, and they perceive that to be a legitimate, a legitimate cause. I think there are other. Is that true of the parents? of... Do I remember correctly that that's true of the parents of Saint Therese or something like that? Or? Pass. My knowledge okay. of Saint Therese is very limited. Well, there are. I think there are some other. There are some other people like that, and again, I'm, I may well be wrong about Maximilian. <laughs> parents and someone i'm sure somebody's gonna let me know but i know there are some saints who fit into that category um and uh and and there's a canon here 1154 uh so there's so then the next couple of sections of 1152 and 1153 are sort of about reasons why people might separate um if either the spouse's causes grave mental or physical danger to the other spouse or to the offspring um that spouse gives the other a legitimate cause for leaving um as you know, with and so, the committing adultery what's that as with committing adultery
1: is the other main reason that's discussed for separation of the spouses with the bond enduring. um and then the canons talk well, a great a deal about, bit, well the canons talk not, a great deal about you know the praiseworthiness of reconciliation and forgiveness and readmission it is earnestly
0: recommended that a spouse moved by christian charity and concern for the good of the family not refuse forgiveness to an adulterous partner and not disrupt conjugal life nevertheless if the spouse did not condone the fault of the other expressly or tacitly the spouse has the right to sever conjugal living unless the spouse Unless the spouse consented to the adultery, gave cause for it, or also committed adultery. I think unpacking that would be a very long thing and a very controversial thing. I don't want to talk about what gave cause for it could mean and these kinds of things. So I... I I don't want to unpack it either. I just didn't want to step over it and... Oh, I was stepping over it (laughs) (laughs) because I think
1: it would be controversial. I didn't want people yelling at us on... Uh, in the comments saying but you
0: did you missed out this part oh no i was purposely <laughs> stepping over because it it's not related to this oh no i'm happy um, to just say it's there we're not talking about it yeah in addition to um in addition to those things that it is also true in the history of the church that people have been judged to legitimately separate for the sake of contemplation you know the contemplation of god and religious life and uh and and so 1154 says well you can't just sort of whatever the reason for separating is you can't just sort of abandon your kids period after the separation of the spouses has taken place the adequate support and education of the children must always be suitably provided and so you know if you're going to separate for marital reasons or if you're going to separate because you want into religious life you better have effectively you know a plan to make sure that your children can be provided for um but i think af- everything after that is kind of cultural today i'm fascinated say- i i have read that in canon i don't know how many times and it never occurred to me
1: that after the separation of the spouse has taken place, the adequate support and education of the children must always be suitably provided for. It never occurred to me that 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 would envisage or be applicable to the idea of the spouses separating to mutually enter religious life. I just, it just I mean I, I'm not saying you're wrong. In fact, yeah, yeah. Now that I'm reading it, this is like oh my, it yeah. Kind of reads like a
0: benefit, right? I yeah, mean, it does. <laughs> today in our contemporary it just never culture, occurred to me. It would seem so highly unusual because today in our contemporary culture, it is you know widely expected that parents and children live in, you know, close familial... that the, the familial life is expected to be sort of intimate interpersonal life, right? But th- that hasn't always been the case in many ways. So, you know, if you think about a period of time in which children might... Um, uh, so my uh, plan to drop my kid go, off at a monastery or convent at age seven is totally legit. Right, but I mean, if you think about a period of time, it might be, although it's the kind of the opposite of this, but think about a time when children would be more frequently going to boarding schools or apprenticed at a young age yes. or otherwise... Being raised by another relative, maybe because of you know an inequity of resources or things like that. I mean, now the notion of like a kid not living with their parents is like, oh my goodness. But uh, but there are obviously ways in which that is um, that's a cultural condition of 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 right now, and there are obviously other ways in which um, the intimacy even of family life can be thought of um, and have been thought of in other periods of time. So I think right now, if a husband and wife said like, hey, we have kids in their teens or something like that and we want to enter religious life people would be like oh that's pretty weird and i think the diocesan bishop who would have to sort of permit that um you know for them to enter religious life would be like that's pretty weird and we don't think that's gonna fly but i that that i don't think that has always sort of historically been the case and you know i i oh i just read about a woman who was widowed she just died but she was widowed um and uh, and entered a Carmel, you know, and she had kids who were like in their twenties. Maybe the oldest, the youngest kid was in college or something like that. And and uh, she entered a Carmel, like I want to say, in the sixties or seventies, when her kids were, uh, you know, somewhere between twenty and then grown. And and uh, and she just died. And so they had this experience of their mom, their entire adult life, being in a Carmel. But uh, I think it is something that is sort of largely culturally conditioned, but not something which the Church says is absolutely problematic, because it's happened, and there are saints who had children raised by other people because there was a time when just children were more frequently raised you know in, in by a relative or, or something like that anyway yeah I this was
1: this was an unexpectedly um ac- yeah uh, yeah I, I didn't I didn't think we were going to have much here but we did uh, cool
0: <laughs> so we do one more uh yeah by all means one more okay one more wheel of cannons turn 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 and tell us the lesson our listeners should learn tell me when to stop it Oh. Uh, just Do you know what that's from? That's the Wheel of Morality from Animaniacs. Did you ever see the Wheel of Morality sketches of Animaniacs? I, I, I did watch Animaniacs when I was a kid, but I don't have any memory of that. But I. Okay, I'm going to send you some Wheel of Moralities this afternoon, and i am probably put some Wheel of Moralities on Twitter, and then when you listen to this show, you'll know why. Okay. Wheel of Morality, turn, turn, turn. Tell us the lessons that we should learn. Ed, tell me when to stop. Stop. These are this five questions. <laughs> we'll pick one. Uh, this is a moral theolo- This is a question of moral theology. Oh, I the disregard, no interest. Yeah, This was... is this is canon law <laughs> think, hot takes.
1: I don't take think your I theology even... <laughs> elsewhere, people. I have no interest. If I wanted to talk about that, I'd have got a different
0: degree. <laughs> okay, uh, these que- these other questions here are mostly about his are about history, like what you know what happened in this year and this. And I don't. I would have to get a different set of books to be able to answer those. So. Hmm. Uh, Canonically, this is a good one. Canonically, what is the difference between a rite and a church? Are these two concepts necessarily connected? And if so, which is logically prior to the other? Does difference in rite necessitate difference in church or vice versa? To answer this, it seems to me that we're going to have to turn over to our shelf to um, grab for ourselves the code of canons of the Eastern churches oh boy okay what is the difference between a right and a church are they connected are they related does the difference necessitate difference in church does the difference in right necessitate difference in church or vice versa so.
1: okay so
0: are you there do you have your eastern code
1: i have my eastern code I have my beautiful blue book yes
0: would you like to read canon 27
1: surely canon 27 of the other blessed code of canon law a community of the christian faithful which is joined together by a hierarchy hold on one second sorry
0: are you translating are you reading from the latin and translating as you go yeah i'm trying to good for you okay thank you
1: a community of the Christian faithful joined together by a hierarchy according to the norm of law and which is expressly or otherwise recognized as sui juris by the supreme authority of the church is called in this code
0: a church sui juris. A church is a group of Christian faithful united by a hierarchy according to the norm of law, which the supreme authority of the church expressly or tacitly recognizes as who yours. So a church is effectively a group of the Christian faithful united by a hierarchy. Right. And the Catholic church is a communion of several churches. Is that right? That is
1: right. And so, for example, while it is entirely appropriately to speak of the Latin church, which we do, um, it is also perfectly correct to speak of all of the particular churches which make up the latin church now what binds the latin church together arguably is a rite, the latin rite. um and what is a right you ask well if you go to canon 28 so say
0: that again just make sure everyone heard that say that again so what binds the latin church together So, the latin church is what we ordinarily refer to as the roman catholic church indeed those the, of us who are yeah um, if you are catholic and you don't know what you are you're probably a latin catholic indeed you're not you an eastern latin catholic. mass it doesn't mean you go to Latin Mass. It means you're not an Eastern Catholic. You're yeah. what you would ordinarily refer to as a Roman Catholic.
1: Indeed, and that within the Latin Church, which is proper to speak of, um, there are all of the particular churches. Which is every diocese is a particular church. It is perfectly correct to speak of uh, the Church yeah, that, of the Archdiocese mm. of Washington, D.C. It is perfectly correct to speak of the Church of um, but that,
0: yeah. Greensburg, so, Pennsylvania. That these so are the all... Church is a collection of particular churches. But I think let's talk about churches sui juris as a way of sort of. Okay. Yeah. Um, wait,
1: now you want to talk about churches through yours?
0: Well that's so I mean you asked me to repeat so, what I
1: said. So what I said is what binds these churches together of the Latin Rite is indeed the right that they have. Oh yes,
0: yeah, thank you. Okay, right. Okay. So, so what is a rite? Um,
1: a rite is, according to Canon twenty eight, uh, of the other blessed code of canon law, a liturgical the code of canons
0: for the Eastern churches, promulgated yes. in
1: nineteen ninety. Yes. A rite is a liturgical, theological, spiritual, and disciplinary heritage differentiated by the culture, the circumstances of the history of the peoples, which is expressed by each church suiuris in its own manner of living the faith.
0: I'm going to challenge your translation a little bit. Okay. It's, it's semantic, and I don't even know why I'm going to, but uh, I think a rite is the liturgical, theological, spiritual, and disciplinary patrimony, culture, and circumstances of history of a distinct people. Now, so the, the people are distinct, um, and these are their things rather than the People are differentiated by their culture and circumstances. Maybe six, one, and a half dozen of another.
1: Wait, sorry. Say say your part again.
0: Say your translation again. Uh, liturgical, <laughs> theological, so... spiritual,
1: and disciplinary. I said heritage, but patrimony, fine. Differentiated by the culture and the circumstances of the history of peoples, which is expressed by the church sui juris in its own
0: manner of living the faith. Okay, I'm reading culture and circumstances as still being in the list. A right is the liturgical, theological, spiritual, and disciplinary patrimony, culture, and circumstances of history of a distinct people. Ah, so I'm not so I'm not reading the people as being distinguished by the culture and circumstances of history, but but that culture and circumstances of history are among the things which differentiate a right. This is super pedantic and doesn't matter. It's super matter. pedantic, but I. We can, we will, we will, all right. We'll put a pin in that.
1: Latin scholars can, because it's the Latin irony. Scholars. We're, hard, we're arguing scholars, over yes. Latin. <laughs> Latin which
0: is neither of our expertise. Latin well, scholars, and also not the like language of bonus. the Eastern churches either. <laughs> no, it's true. Uh, this should be in Greek or something. But Latin scholars, if you'd like a little bonus game, uh, open for yourself Canon 28 of the Code of Canons of the Eastern churches and just tell us how you're translating it. And uh, if you write to us and tell us how you're translating it, um, we'll be very grateful. And we'll tell you guys next week what the preponderance of Latin scholars have to say about this. It'll be At any rate, a rite is a liturgical, theological, spiritual, and disciplinary patrimony in addition to the culture and circumstances of history of a distinct people by which its own manner of living the faith is manifested in each church or yours. A rite is a way of living the faith. Um, connected to a people by history and culture and liturgy, which includes liturgy and theology and spiritual uh, spirituality and sort of disciplinary patrimony, the way of being. Um, a rite is the way in which vi- different peoples, distinct peoples, have lived the faith. And so there is the Latin rite into which we all fit, which is a very, very big category with there are many peoples within it. And then there is, for example, um the Ukrainian church, which carries within it its own kind of ritual traditions and history and liturgy and spiritual spirituality. And and, and, and these things are manifested. Um the, the the sort of spirituality and spiritual Christian history of the Ukrainian people, for example, is manifested in their church through years, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. The same thing could be said for um the Lebanese people, Lebanese Christians whose uh, history and spirituality and liturgy and um, uh, his, so, oh, circumstances of history are all sort of expressed and manifested in the life of their church sui Uris, the uh, the Maronite Church. The same could be said of the Syro Malabar uh, Church mm-hmm, in, in India, India or the Syro Malankar Church in India.
1: Also, well, distinctions of uh, Syro Malankar, I would. <laughs> yes, it is definitely distinct. Although the
0: particular theological patrimony of that church sui Uris, is interesting. One of my yeah, my, one of my points is going to be I actually. Couldn't tell a Sierra Malabar from a Sierra Malancar under any circumstance, but I'd like to learn. Maybe we'll do another show about that. No, I'm not gonna. Uh, we won't. Okay. So, <laughs> so the Catholic Church is a communion of sui juris churches. The Latin Church being the biggest, the one that the Pope tends to come from, but doesn't necessarily have to. Um, the uh, uh, the one to which you probably belong if you think of yourself as a Roman Catholic, um, but that church is a communion with these other churches: the Ukrainian Catholic Church, the Maronite Church, the Syro-Malabar Church, the Chaldean Church, the Geez Church, um, and um, and those churches are sort of distinguished and identified they have a juridic identity, which is to say they have sort of a hierarchical a relationship of hierarchy which is recognized by the Bishop of Rome, the successor of Saint. Peter, the the uh, the, 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 the vicar of Christ, the servant of the servants of God the Pope. Um, so they have this sort of juridic identity but that juridic identity is an expression of this um, cultural, liturgical, spiritual historical reality which is the thing which we would describe as their right.
1: Ah uh, yes and but i mean you can have, you don't have to have one to have the other you can have indeed distinct right. churches that all have the same rite
0: mm-hmm. which yeah, we have, we have in the Latin church can have distinct churches with historical so which have the same sort of liturgical expression liturgical yes. rite but if a rite is sort of a robust reality that extends beyond liturgy then um, then they have sort of their own patrimony
1: yes yeah
0: mm-hmm. yeah for mm-hmm. example
1: uh, there is the well so if we really wanted to <laughs> If you really want to get into sort of a canonical gray area where language is extremely hotly disputed, yeah, you could talk about... Yeah. Uh, you're saying you don't want to?
0: No, I do want to. Oh, okay. It's I was going to say tricky. you could
1: talk about the ordinariates erected for former Anglicans. Mm-hmm. Um, there are three of those. Uh, there's the... Uh, what is... The, the one over here is the ordinary of the chair of Peter. The mm, the one over there is The, the one Walsingham. in the UK is Our Lady of Walsingham. And the one in Australia is Our Lady of the Kangaroo, I believe...
0: It's not that. It's not that? No, I don't know what it is, but I'll guarantee you it's not that. Okay. Are you sure? <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. All right. <laughs> Keep talking. Okay. Um,
1: anyway, it recognizes a distinct liturgical and spiritual patrimony that comes from the fact that they have come out of the Anglican communion and interval communion with the Catholic Church. Now, of course, if you go far enough historically back, the roots of the Anglican communion are in fact in the Latin Catholic Church. But nevertheless, over the hundreds of years of divergence, there have arisen, you know, it's kind of like the concept of evolution. If you take two species and you put one on an island over enough generations, it will turn into something recognizably different with a common root, but recognizably different. And if you bring it back, then, you know, you set it next to the ones that never left the mainland, they look... You know, the, you can see similarities, you can see a common heritage there, but there are definite distinctions to be drawn. And so there's, um, there, there is a hot canonical debate as to whether or not the ordinariates are really in, in Going fact- in the direction of
0: being church sui Exactly. Su-
1: they are yeah. not explicitly termed churches sui-uris in the law of the church, but there is a uh, chorus of canonical opinion, not a majority necessarily, but a chorus of canonical opinion that says, well, this walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, Um why do we insist on calling it among uh which you know I, I it's interesting it's and again this is not to say you know there's a there's a right or wrong here it's just you know if you want to talk about the the sort of fluid interplay between what is right what is a church how does one come about how do how does how do these things come about in the life of the church like we're watching this happen in real time um, yeah
0: and so I think there, the, the, we are. We're watching an evolution happen in real time. And if you remember, I asked. I think you were with me. I sort of asked a, at a at a at a conference about the um, the Anglican ordinaries a couple of years ago. If they were, for for a lot of technical reasons that have to do with jurisdiction, whether they were sort of. I I asked some CDF officials whether they were sort of going in the direction of being effectively churches sui juris, and they kind of said like, Hey, well, we don't say that out loud, but they do have jurisdiction. And. Other Oh, you know, which are, you know, in which there are distinctions from their sort of territorial, their, oh, their sort of territorial counterparts in the Latin church and which make them very distinct from something like the military ordinariate. So anyway, we, we don't know. But it, it left me with the feeling that that Rome does in a certain way consider the ordinariates to be closer to a church suiuris than to be sort of simply a, a place for a different a liturgical expression. But I, I, I guess I, I realize that as, we, as we've been talking about this and as you've offered some clarity, I, I have not offered a sufficient amount of clarity there, because I'm, try, I'm trying to, to simplify too much. So um, I, I want to say it like this. Um, rites are um, patrimonial expressions of, of the mode of being a Christian. And there are a couple of sort of recognized sort of historical rites in the church in that sense. The Latin rite, the Byzantine rite, the Alexandrian rite, and uh, and a couple of others, and those are expressed in particular churches. In the Latin Church, the Latin rite sort of has a, in a in a sort of historical patrimonial sense, it's coterminous with the Latin Church. But um, the other Catholic churches sui juris sort of fit into the bucket of the rites, rather than being rather than being them. So, for example, within the, sort of the realm of things that we would call Byzantine in a sense of a rite, which would include the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom and things like that, there are a couple of different Catholic churches, Sui juris which have their own um, hierarchy and history of how they became sort of, part of the communion of the Catholic Church, but they all sort of fit into this same ritual identity. I think you were saying that, and I wasn't doing a good job saying that. There's another way that we talk about, the, that we use the word rite, rather than to mean this broad sense of sort of a ritual family and a sort of ca- Christian family, we also mean a particular expression of the liturgy, of sacred liturgy. So, for example, in, 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 the, in inside the Latin rite and inside the Latin church, there is the Ambrosian rite of the mass, which is a long-standing sort of way of celebrating the mass that they did in Ambrosia, I don't know. Um, Milan, J.D. Milan, Yeah. <laughs> I was teasing you. Um, or is there There's the Dominican rite, which is a way that Dominicans have long sort of celebrated mass, which they still have the right to do. So all of that kind of, those liturgical rituals, which we call rites, fit into um, a particular church, the Latin church, but they also fit into a rite in the broad sense, the Latin rite. Um, and, uh, and so we have to distinguish, I think, between those three things. A rite in a broad sort of sense of a body of tradition of living out the, the life of faith, um, a particular church, which fits into and can be coterminous with a rite, and then what we call a liturgical rite, which fits into a particular church. Is that, uh, is that fair, Ed? I think it's fair. I don't think that we've offered much
1: in the way of clarity. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, so for example... It does not example, apply, for
1: example, you do not have a... If you are a, I don't know, let's say a west side of Chicago Catholic, the quasi-use of pierogi as a sacramental does not qualify as a
0: rite in the church. (laughs) I I don't know if we've offered much clarity here or not, but when we talk about a rite, we mean two different things. Either a a broad set of sort of Christian patrimony, that is a culture, um, or a particular liturgical thing which fits into, which couldn't fit into that rite. And then in the middle of that is this notion of sort of um, churches sui juris, which the Catholic Church is a confederation of the Latin Church or communion of the Latin Church, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, which is fits into the Byzantine rite or the um, Alexandrian rite into which fits the Coptic Catholic Church or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Should we do one more? Because that was a tricky one. That was a pretty tricky one. Let's do one more. I mean, yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. I just like to do one that is a little bit... Uh, i'm spinning the wheel guys i am spinning the wheel um this person asks um are there any canons concerning beards no no not in the universal law of the church i do know of a diocese which prohibits its priests from growing facial hair uh and um it is customary in
1: it it, oh it's priests from growing facial not its clerics i was going to say how do they have permanent deacons then (laughs)
0: <laughs> no mustaches, no permanent deacons Why? I do know of a diocese which which prohibits its priests from growing facial hair because there's a long tradition of sort of um, secular priests by which we mostly mean diocesan priests not having facial hair and um, certainly we can think of a bunch of religious orders that have a long history of growing facial hair um, that that's kind of become a part of like kind of the culture of the religious order but no insofar as I know um, other than the there is a canon I think about clerics needing to have a neat personal appearance um, other than that I'm not aware of any canons on beards. That was a much easier one than rights, wasn't it? Yes, I think so. Okay. Listeners, if we didn't get to your question, we didn't get to your question. But if you have a canonical question that you'd like us to fumble through, um, by all means, feel free to uh, write us, uh, Twitter us, uh, Messenger Pigeon us, or otherwise um, communicate with us to send us your questions. If you love The Pillar podcast, uh, don't forget to consider becoming a subscriber to um, The Pillar. You can go to pillarcatholic.com, hit subscribe, and, uh, and uh, become a paying subscriber to The Pillar, which we would appreciate. And, um, and by the way, we're kind of wanting to do something good this week, and this is what we're doing. Um, we want to help the people of Haiti who have been afflicted by an earthquake, followed by a tropical storm, um, both of which followed a political crisis that began several months ago and culminated last month in the assassination of their president. The people of Haiti are suffering. Uh, we want to help them, and uh, we know that you do too. So this week... We are um, giving for every new paying subscriber that we get to The Pillar, which you can subscribe to at PillarCatholic.com, we will send um, $10 to Mission to the Beloved, which is a Catholic apostolate in Haiti, which provides um, both spiritual formation and evangelization and material support to Haitians. So if you want to uh, subscribe to The Pillar to keep it going and uh, also help the people of Haiti, PillarCatholic.com, hit subscribe, help us out um, because you love us. Ed, anything else?
1: uh no no i i think uh this was an invigorating
0: conversation hey we'll see you guys next week the pillar podcast is a production of pillar media and ed and jd production i'm your host and pillar editor-in-chief jd flynn and i'm joined by my podcasting partner ed condon and this week we were joined by your questions hasta luego